Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership saxophonist and composer Thomas Lockett, an original member of one of the most talented, beloved, and badass funk bands of the 1970s and 1980s. I'm talking about Dayton, Ohio's Slave. The group's gifted musicians also included late great bassist Mark Adams and guitarist Mark Hicks, multi-instrumentalist Steve Washington, horn player Floyd Miller, and later on, drummer-singer Steve Arrington, guitarist-singer Kurt Jones, and keyboardist Sam Carter. The latter four uh, have all been on feature uh, have all been featured on past Truth and Rhythm episodes, so check those out as well. Slay's classic jams include "Slide," "Just a Touch of Love," "Stellar Funk," "Just Freak," "Volcano Volcano Rupture," "Watching You," "Wait for Me," "Stone Jam," "Snapshot," "Baby Sinister," and "Sizzling Hot," just to name a few. Some of Slave's members went on to more success with acts like Aura and Steve Arrington's Hall of Fame. Tom, thank you for joining me. How are you doing? Awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thank you. Appreciate you yeah. coming on the show. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Just so, trying to get word out about what's going on. Yeah, we appreciate that. I'm so glad that you're still at it, you know, so can't wait to... Uh, Find out more about what's uh, what's happening now and uh, talk some history, too. Sounds good. Sounds good. So, Tom, are you in your uh, home studio there or what? Yes, this is where... Uh, actually, this is Studio A. Um, I kind of... Um, my wife would always say, well, when are you coming downstairs? You know? So, uh, I have a Studio B downstairs that uh, I was actually in the bedroom for a while, which was kind of... You know, but I was using, you know, the head, headphones. So um, in in my regular job, I have a regular job. I started working from home. And so I've kind of migrated over to the other room. So my, my little studio location is downstairs. So I try to stay busy. I, I try to stay creative. And are you still in Ohio or where are you? Where are you? I'm in Fayetteville, Georgia. Been down here about nine years now. Okay. I didn't yeah. even know there was a Fayetteville there. Uh, there also, there's one here in North Carolina, of course. Yeah, Fayetteville, we're, we're only about uh, seven miles from the big studio where they uh, filmed uh, Black Panther. Just mm -hmm. the Trilla studio. So it's small, knit community. Okay. About roughly how far from Atlanta? Uh, it takes us about 30, 35 minutes to get downtown. Okay, yeah. that's pretty. So it's a suburb, basically. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Well, you know, I've been a fan since the get-go, you know, since I first heard a uh, slide coming out of my transistor radio uh, one summer back in 1977, and I was like, who the hell is that? <laughs> you know, so uh, very cool to have you on and talk about that. Great, great, great. You know, we got together, uh, our first rehearsal was... Uh, 
October 5th, 1975. That's when I met Steve Washington, me, Floyd, and Mark Adams. We were already in another group called the Young Mystics. We uh, we, we met Stevie uh, over the Tim, Tim Dozier's parents' house. And we immediately knew that we all had the same vibe about trying to be serious. What we didn't know when I first met Stevie was that he was living with Pee Wee, the trumpet player for the Ohio Players, who was in fact turned out to be his uncle. So from the get-go, we only rehearsed and we only got together to do stuff uh, to record. We didn't get together to uh, play live shows. Matter of fact, we only did about two live shows before we were about to sign a contract. Wow. So you talk about fresh, you know, wow. And, and, and when you came to that situation, Tom, you know, did you have a formal, uh, you know, music training or how did you get to the saxophone? And no, no. Uh, I started playing clarinet in the second grade. Uh, me and Floyd, we, we were on the same, you know, uh, school band. I mean, we go all the way back, me, Floyd, and Mark Adams, we went all the way back to the second grade. That's how far we, you know, uh, had known each other. Uh, none of us had formal training. Uh, some of the other people who came in later on had formal training. We were self-taught. And, you know, over the course of five, ten years, if you are following other great artists, you begin to uh, simulate what other artists do. And in turn, that rubbed off on us. And of course, Stevie had way more, Steve Washington, he had way more experience being around more professional musicians. And so he began to really polish us as far as making sure that we knew the difference between playing live and recording, which is a totally different ball game. What were your first impressions of, of Stevie, you know? When you first met him and and saw him as as a person and as a musician, uh, we were in somewhat awe. Um, Stevie had a different personality. He was uh, at the time he was more serious about it. Uh, not that we weren't serious, but being that Stevie was actually living with Pee Wee, you know, he was around. At times, he was still going out with them, doing various things. He was assisting on the road crew and stuff like that. Uh, he had a lot more professional experience that we had the benefit of uh, tapping into. And keep in mind, we were all 15, 16, 17 years old. So we were very, very uh, impressionable. Were, you, were your parents generally supportive? Um, I tricked my parents into getting <laughs> the saxophone because I started on clarinet. Now, this was before I met Stevie. Um, no, it was, it, yeah, it was before I met Stevie. So I was already in the uh, high school uh, band. And with the Mystics, that's actually, you know, when it started as far as we switching the sax, that was the first group that we got together. Um, they wanted me in it because we were so close, but they said, we don't need you to play clarinet. So I kind of told my father that, you know, I needed, you know, my, my mother and father that I needed a saxophone, you know, for the school band. And so, you know, I mean, you know, my father got me the saxophone. And the problem was I needed to rehearse with the guys after school. But I needed to have the horn at school. So I was hiding the saxophone in the little shed in the backyard. And my mother saw, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden my behavior changed as I was sneaking out going into the shed. So after she saw me do that two days, she, she pulled me aside and said, if that's what you're trying to do, that's okay, but don't be sneaking around. So yeah, they were supportive, but I kind of led them along the way. You were, you were literally woodshedding. <laughs> <laughs> literally. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So when you started moving in that direction, did you have any influences on horns or, you know, idols or anything like that? Not necessarily as far as horns. I mean, of course, we follow, um, you know, again, we're in Dayton, Ohio. So the Ohio players, you know, they had blown up, you know, fire, skin tight, all those 
you know, songs. Um, there were some other local groups that were more professional. They were, you know, older guys. So we were in awe of them, but uh, we were more focused on groups rather than for me as a, a, a young, you know, saxophonist. We were all more so focused on groups rather than, at least I was, I was more focused on groups. So we followed and patterned ourselves after Graham Central Station, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, obviously. Uh, we really were digging on uh, Cool and the Gang, you know, stuff like that. So it was always groups that had horn sections. So we were more so focused on groups with horn sections. And was it Stevie that was pretty much doing the arrangements for the horns or was someone else doing that? It was, it was more Stevie. We would do certain things, but Stevie just really understood more of what was necessary as far as harmonies and as far as rhythms. So of course, the fact that he's with the players, he couldn't help but, you know, educate us on what would work and not more so again, not for live purposes, but for recording. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, when Steve uh, Arrington was on the show, he he uh, talked about uh, hearing Slide for the first time over the phone, you know, that it was played for him. And he was like blown away. And he was like, I got to be part of this somehow. <laughs> uh, so can you tell us something, Tom, about, you know, when how that came together and kind of how you felt about when you first heard the finished product? The thing that's ironic about Slide, we rehearsed steadily for about i can't tell you exactly how many months but it was at least six to eight months that we were rehearsing primarily just coming up with original material and we had went to new jersey uh stevie new program director there uh for wnjr radio station jeff dixon who became our manager so stevie convinced him to invest into us because uh, at the time, of course, with the Ohio players and other groups at the time, it, it was about big bands and, you know, young, you know, uh, black guys as far as uh, that type of music, you know, funk, of course, George Clinton, all that was out. So that was which was another one of our idols, which was, you know, Parliament and them. So he convinced Jeff to invest into us. And when we first went on the first trip, we did go to a, a much smaller studio and we recorded. And that's when we could really hear the difference between what we would sound like just playing and practicing and trying to write a song versus what we sounded like when we were recording. So we worked on that for a few months and then he brought us back up. So when we went back up to New Jersey and we recorded in a studio in Sarahville, New Jersey, um, literally two nights before we went in to record, is when we came up with Sly. We didn't have Sly. We had um, a little bourbon. <laughs> Steve Washington, Mark Adams, uh, Drac, um, Carter Bradley. Uh, basically, the rhythm section, they were downstairs in Steve Washington's parents' uh, living room. And I just never forget it. Me and Floyd, we were upstairs. We had fell asleep. And we just kind of, we, we woke up because we heard this sound. It was like, what is that? It just, I mean, everyone knew. We knew immediately that this was something different. So we just concentrated on that for the next two days. When we went into the studio, that was the first thing that we recorded. So when you listen to Slide, realize that we had only came up with that two days before, and it was one take. All of the rhythm section, the drums, the guitars, the keyboards, and the solo that Drake played was the first thing that we played, and it was one take. That's what you call keeping the faith, brother. About four or five months ago, someone sent me, they're called stems. Someone sent me the individual files from that session that I have. 
talking about chilling, to actually hear, because you can hear us talking to each other and you hear all the rambling sounds of what was going on. And um, it's emotional because, see, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, we've lost. And you hear their voices, you hear um, just certain little, you know, um, ambient noises that you realize how much of an art it was for the finished product. You know, I mean, you know as well as listening to somebody record something and listen to what a true engineer can do. So Jimmy Douglas over at Atlantic Studios, he actually mixed it and transformed it into what we listen to today. And was the son of Slide, was that uh, part of the same session that was broken yeah. up? or We didn't do anything different. That was a Jimmy Douglas uh, production. We didn't know he was doing it. He just went back in there because we all knew the slide was a hit. Uh, I mean, everyone knew uh, what was excruciating. I was still in my senior year in high school, and I knew we had a hit record. Everyone that would listen to it was like, what is that? And we had found out that um, Atlantic wanted it. Our uh, Again, our original manager, uh, Jeff Dixon, he had a good relationship with uh, Henry Allen at the time. You know, being, you know, back in the day, it was the record companies and the program directors at the radio stations. So he had a good relationship with Henry Allen and he took it over there and he played it to him one time. It was it. That was it. There, there was no... You know, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, they're too young. None of that, including the fact that we called ourselves slaves. Now, keep in mind, we were 15, 16, 17 years old when we called ourselves that. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, we were surprised that we didn't get any kickback from the record company. They never, they just went right with it. And when Slide eventually came out, it came out the same month that Roots the first original Root series came out, 1977, February. So did that help it or, or hinder it, or was it related I, at all? I think it helped, but it was not related at all. I mean, yeah. Atlantic Warners, they didn't know that that was going to happen. Right. I mean, did the public seem to connect it somehow? It's hard to say, because keep in mind, when it came out, I was 18 years old. And watching Roots, remember, we were watching Roots at the same time we were going out on the road. It was kind of like a traumatic experience to see, you know, and then, we're, you know, we're saying to ourselves, we call ourselves slave. <laughs> but it was a classic situation because we were so young and we never caught any flack from anyone, you know, about the name. So, you know, as time has moved on, we're trying to do the name more justice even in this date and time. Yeah. Um, that track, it's like when you listen to it, each phase of it like takes it to another level where, especially at the time, you're just like, you know, blown away time and time again because it's that intro, it's like the crazy bicycle horn, it's the, the wild vocal, it's that earth-shaking bass uh, riff, and then the guitar comes in. It's just incredible. Well, you know, to this day, me and a lot of guys, you know, we still say that it was just so much happened in that space and time for that six minutes. And again, it was, I mean, just keep in mind, that was one take. We recorded the horn separate. Of course, we came back and did the vocals. But the reason why, when you listen to Slide, the reason why you have that feeling is because it was only done one time. We we had rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. It was fresh, so you know it was it was it was hard to come back and follow that up. You know, follow that up with uh, later songs. But you know, a lot of things that helped with that was bringing in new individuals and us learning more about recording. So uh, we were very fortunate. And so, you know, having been a studio creation, basically, at that point, you know, how did it progress with learning how to put on a stage show? And when did you kind of first get out there and actually do some of that? Slide came out February. 
and it was gold about five months later. So we were immediately transplanted to New Jersey to rehearse, to get ready. Uh, keep in mind, as far as the big stage, we had never performed in, in anything larger than, let's say there was a, a, a couple places in Dayton, like um, back in the day, it was the Lakeview Palladium and other places. But we as a unit had only done two shows. We played in a, a, on an outdoor concert at the time with, um, you remember when Luther was with, um, what was it called, Change? Mm -hmm. And I mean, this was Luther. <laughs> we didn't know what was going to happen later on with Luther. But back then, you know, it was obvious that he was, you know, a, a, a gifted vocalist. But we only did those two shows. So when Slide came out and we were like, you know, we, <laughs> we were the, you know what I'm saying? We was, you know, when we got on stage, we started out and we were really making the uh, sound crews. We were really making them mad because we were turning our amps up so loud and we were just, you know, just going at it. And it was like, it took us a while. It took us about a month to realize, let's let the PA do the work. Let's just make sure that we can hear ourselves. So it was a learning process. Do you remember who, uh, well, aside from change, like what other funk act did you go out with uh, for the first time? That was the, the great thing. One of our first mini tours, it wasn't a tour. We did a show with Average White Band and Wild Cherry. <laughs> slave with the white guys. Interesting. Average White Band, Slave, and Wild Cherry. And what was interesting about Average White Band, keep in mind, this was 1977, and we were in awe of everyone. I mean, it was like, you know, we were excited about we about what we were doing, but these were our idols. And so uh, us being horn players, we were just, you know, geeked out watching the horn players. And these guys are back there throwing beers back. And they came out and they were just perfect. I mean, these guys, I mean, they were pro pros. We had not gone through all the, uh, years of development and everything. We came out of grade school to high school to recording to average white band and wild cheer. We also did some touring with um, the Brothers Johnson. Um, we did three shows back to back to back with the Commodores. When we first, our first show that we came back to Dayton to do, we played at uh, University of uh, Dayton Arena uh, with the Commodores. And uh, of course, we, I mean, we didn't really, really, really realize where we were at as far as what we had accomplished. So uh, it was learning some things where um, our road manager at the time, there was some type of mishap and he was, you know, trying to protect us. So one of the Commodore's um, bodyguards, whatever, picked him up and body slammed him. So we learned quickly, uh, be respectful of everyone. <laughs> but we also toured with, um, we did some shows with Bootsy and the Rubber Band. And um, I don't think we actually played with Parliament that first year out. But the thing that was great about them, instead of them giving us hassle, because keep in mind, we were kids. Everyone else that we were playing with were, you know, seasoned musicians. So when uh, we played with Bootsy, not only him, but his role crew, they kind of took us up under their wing, made sure that we had everything that we needed. Uh, whereas a lot of the other acts, they really kind of just looked at us like, you know, they like the record, but it's one thing to listen to the record and then look at us because they could tell that we were kids. You know, I mean, Mark Adams was 15 when he recorded Sly. 15, not 16. He was 15 years old. So, I mean, 
for the most part, we got respect. I mean, we played with uh, Shaka Khan, uh, one or two shows. We played with uh, Patti LaBelle. And what was interesting about that, her bus broke down. So she ended up getting on our bus to go to the show. And I'm sitting there and Patty's sitting like, like I'm looking at you on the screen now. She was like that close to me. And I was just, because <laughs> <laughs> to this day when Patty sings, I cry. She just, you know. So um, there were a few other artists. There was this one artist, uh, oh God, it'll come to me in a minute, but we played with some of the greats. Uh, we were out in California. Um, some of the shows that we did, I'll be honest with you, after we learned to allow the um, sound crews to do our work for us, there were a few shows that slide just kind of like came alive. And it was almost like a out-of-body experience. And um, we did... Uh, a show with Maze. Again, this is 1977 in California. And it's just amazing for us to, you know, to zoom 40 some years past. And I'm still looking at these guys and they're still doing it at the same level. So, you know, that was awesome. Um, You've asked me a little bit too quick, you know, when I think about it, it's, it's still kind of like a blur. Some of the things that we did, oh, we did a show with um, Foreigner. Oh, interesting. We were the biggest R&B act on Atlantic that year. And Foreigner was the biggest pop rock group, whatever they were labeled. So. They flew us, Atlantic flew us from California. When we went out there, they flew us back to Miami. We did a show with them. Uh, so that was mind boggling. We did a show with um, Carlos Santana at the spec at uh, the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Wow, there that you go. Yeah. So I mean, we were exposed to uh, everything that we needed to be exposed to. And it, it taught us how much we still needed to learn. And um, we we did at one point, we did one show with the Ohio Players. And what was interesting, keep in mind, Stevie was living with Pee Wee. And Stevie, you know, was asking them to help us out. And of course, they were going, y'all kids. <laughs> they knew Stevie had talent, but of course, they knew nothing about us. And so... Um, there was a couple of times where we thought, you know, PB was gonna come by a rehearsal and it never happened. And then we did what we did on our own. And so it kind of blew them away, you know, that we went from, you know, Stevie living with him to meeting us. And Stevie met Drac first. They, they were at this uh, high school uh, musical class. I forget what they called it back, you know, back then. And that's, see, Stevie met Drac. And then Drac introduced all of us to Stevie. And back in the day, Drac was not Drac. You know, the first time we heard Drac say he was Drac was when he went in to, <laughs> he went in to say something on the mic. We're sitting there and he says, they call me Drac. And, such and, such. and we were like, they call you what? <laughs> And from that day on, he was Drax. So it's just little things like that, that, you know, still to this day we laugh about. But um, <laughs> Well, speaking you know. of that, uh, Tom, uh, you know, back then, I mean, I had, of course, a lot of musical heroes I looked up to and, and you know, Drac and, and Mark were two of them for sure on the bass and guitar. What can you share with viewers about those two guys, you know, when they were even that young in terms of their talent and, and what kind of guys were they? Mark Adams um, was such a special young man. He started out playing guitar, you know, rhythm guitar. And I forget what it was that triggered him to change. But when he switched to bass, 
no matter when you would see him, he would have the bass on. I would go over to his house and Floyd Miller, the trombone player, they lived right across the street from each other. I was like a five minute walk away. We, you know, we went to, to you know, grade school together. But whenever I go over to see Mark, he always had the bass. He never, I mean, he, he, he rehearsed until he went to sleep and he would get up the next day. That's all he did. And um, that's why he was in the beginning, he was pretty much the focus of what we did because at the time he was better. I mean, him and then him and Stevie really worked together on improving his sound. Um, as I listened to Steve Arrington's uh, interview, he was, he was dead on point with the importance of what Stevie did. It wasn't just uh, Stevie sharing some things with him as far as certain techniques, but he really worked with Mark Adams as far as uh, what type of pickups he was using on his guitar, on his, on his bass, what type of head, what type of settings. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I used to look at them and go, ain't y'all tired? <laughs> but that transcended into the studio. It wasn't just when we went in and, he, and Mark would plug in. I mean, the reason why all the stuff that we did sounded the way it sounded was because of preparation and a whole lot of experimentation. And by the time Mark got to um, the third album, that's when he started to change his style. And I never forget we were uh, at Atlantic Studios in uh, New York and the fourth and the fifth albums, Mark Adams was um, he was unstoppable. He um, I never forget some of the people that were, you know, I mean, we're in Atlantic Studios, so you know, you know, you've got all these great artists. Um, our engineer was um the grandson of what's one of the uh, famous uh, rhythm guitars? I mean, um, guitars. Les Paul. Les Paul's son was one of our engineers. I think that was for the fifth album. He recorded the fifth album with us. The Stone Jam. Yeah, Stone Jam. So we were around all these people who had 10, 15, 20 years of experience and they're still looking at us like kids. But then they would see Mark. And of course, by that time, Arrington had came in and Arrington was an accomplished um, drummer, uh, percussionist. And, you know, I mean, he was brought in to do that. He kind of took over with uh, what he was doing as far as vocals. That wasn't the plan, but, you know, you always go with the flow. If you have common sense, you go with the flow when it comes to music. So Mark was playing and people would just stop and just look in and go. Because again, at that time, he was still only about 19. And he was, you know, we were getting interviewed and um, the talk was really about Mark. And it was just, I mean, there was never a jealousy with us because, I mean, we just knew that probably 50% of our sound was based on Mark Adams. And we just covered things around what he was doing. So uh, now Drac, Drac was, uh, we would see him do solos like that before we started with Slide. Drac just had uh, a natural gift. He started playing, uh, and what was interesting we didn't know, me and Drac, we didn't know we were cousins, close cousins. We'd already done some recording. Um, I don't know if we recorded slide yet. I think we had. We were back in town. And i never forget, Drac came over. He stopped by. And uh, I said, yeah, I've got some people here from out of town, from uh, uh, Detroit. He's like, so do I. And so one thing, you know, and it was like, you know, we turned out to be close cousins on our mother's side. But 
Drax started playing guitar, rock guitar more so because of his older brother. And his older brother was good, but Mark just had the ability to let go. That's all I can tell you. I didn't see a lot of what was going on with him when he was actually maturing. By the time I met, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm confusing because it was Mark Hicks who became Drac. So I'm, I'm talking about Drac now. Drac was um, gifted in the sense that he, as he was soloing, you could just tell that he would just let go. And he would just let the guitar and his fingers just transcend. It wasn't like he planned everything that he was doing. It, to this day, when you listen to the slide solo that he did, I mean, what was he thinking about? <laughs> and it was one take. So, I mean, if you listen to a whole lot of great, uh, especially R&B solos, that solo that Drac did to this time, it stands the test of time as, as one of the greatest, you know, guitar solos of all time. So, you know, we, we were blessed to catch him at the right time. Yeah, at the time it was up there with, you know, Funkadelic level. Yes, which solos. was, again, that was our idol, you know. So uh, we didn't realize that we were going to be with them. Of course, we were into, um, we used to do uh, Funk 49. You know, everybody had to do Funk 49. Uh, there was... Um, some of these bands are slipping my mind. See, you have to keep in mind, after we did the fifth and sixth album, you know, the, the, the fifth album, that's when there was a split. And all the guys went on, me and Steve Washington stayed, and that's when we started getting more serious with Aura. And uh, it was, I didn't see Mark uh, and Floyd. I mean, these guys I grew up with, I didn't see them anymore about six months or maybe even a year. And after other things happened, I ended up just getting, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I did. I ended up working, and I still do, I work a regular job. You know, I, I, I was able to transition to being a regular citizen because I was a, a decent session player. I was never the great, you know, soloist. So um, the thing that kind of, was important was that we did a lot of things on our own. We took over our production and management after the third album. Jeff Dixon was bought out and we never actually had another day-to-day -day manager, which was good, but it was also not the best, which is why our presence live took a back seat because keep in mind at that time we were still only like 20 years old 21 years old and there were a lot of things that we could have and should have done way back in the day that we just never did do interesting when you point out that timing though because i mean after the third album is when you guys really started getting some major crossover hits uh you know and uh it was still you guys still had that funk always but it just became a little more accessible or something somehow at least for some of the tracks Keep in mind, we were living in New Jersey, in East Orange, New Jersey, and when Slide came out, we heard it play on the New Jersey stations. New York never played it. Well, L.A. was all over it. That's where I was. Yes. And to this day, you know, uh, we do know that we have a following there, you know. Uh, we did not get played in New York until we did Just a Touch of Love. Mm -hmm. And when Just a Touch of Love came out, it took over. They needed a little more smoothness to to get to it, yeah. Because you guys plus, had so much edge on those first three, yeah. Yeah, and plus it was you know young black guys calling themselves slaves. I was like, I guess it was like I don't know where they're going with this, but yeah. By the time we got to that point, and you know things were still fresh, yeah. That that's when New York really you know embraced us. I mean, even the hardness of the world, the second record. Um, it didn't have a slide on it, but I thought uh, end to end it still showed progression. You guys, as a as a as a cohesive work, it was definitely showing the maturity and how you guys were growing. Uh, so I would say it's more consistent than the first album, even though the first album has the all time classic and slide. Um, and then you guys just kept, you know, growing with each record. We were still concentrating on 
the recording and improving our musicianship. Um, we didn't really work on the live thing as much because part of our um, magic was we didn't do a lot of synchronized things. We were just raw. Um, I think back now, you know, I wish we had, you know, had of, but, you know, our idol again was, you know, Bootsy, Parliament, uh, Brothers Johnson. They were raw too. That's what they did. They, they weren't doing steps and stuff together. They were just bringing the, the music directly to their audience. And that's what we wanted to do. So um, uh, it's still mind blowing. Sometimes I think back where I can drive it down the street and it'll come on the radio and I'm going, wow. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember when you first heard Slide on the radio? I remember exactly where I was. Uh, it was me, Mark Adams, Floyd, we were in the car. And um, we were in, I'm saying my car, but it was the car that my father let me drive. It was a 1966 Buick LeSabre. And when it came on the radio, it hit me so hard. I was in the driver's seat. I jumped all the way in the back seat. <laughs> and it changed everything. It never came off the radio. So, um, and it's still, you know, I mean, when you hear yourself on the radio, it's still, I mean, it is a, a blessing that, you know, we were able to, to, to even get there. Never mind, um, if you look at Spotify, still to this day, Slave gets uh, more attention than some of the other acts. Uh, Steve Arrington and the Hall of Fame, they did very well. They had some great hits. The thing that is fortunate about them, we got sampled, but we didn't get sampled nowhere near as much as uh, Steve Arrington and the Hall of Fame. You know, some of the greats. Um, um, Money Ain't a Thing, and then some of the other hits that they did. Uh, their, their catalog has done a lot better than ours. What uh, a lot of people don't realize, we got credit for um, what um, Snoop, Snoop Dogg did with Gin and Juice. Uh, the hook that they do on that is kind of like, they took kind of like our hook and they did it their own way, but we're still making good money from Gin and Juice, which was a blessing. So um, the group, um, it, it went through a lot of transitions. Uh, there was a lot of love, but there also came a lot of pain. You know, when you talk about Slave's unique uh, sound and, and the work, um, it's really interesting about that area, Dayton, Ohio. I mean, not only was it such a foundation um, of funk, but the groups all sounded different, you know, and there was so much diversity within those bands. I don't know if everyone really realizes the level of distinction that all these groups had. What do you attribute that to? I mean, it's like, okay, something in the water brought the funk, but how did it come that everyone was so unique? You know what? None of us know. I wish there was a simple answer. The I think the biggest difference is, while a lot of us, okay, so keep in mind, we were much younger than everyone else. Uh, we're definitely much younger than the Ohio players. Um, so the Ohio players is one of the, well, they were the, the, the biggest group to come out. And then I think we were the next biggest group to come out. I can't remember, remember exactly when uh, Zap and Roger and them came out, but it was real close to, you know, to us. Roger and, and um, their group, they were much more savvy with how they wanted to handle their entire operation. Um, we were still kids and we were transplanted, like I said, to New Jersey. Whereas when the players hit and when Rosenham hit, they stayed in Dayton. You know, they didn't, you know, move. Um, Roger was one of the, uh, I compare Roger and um, um, Sugar 
they had a thing of their own, which kind of forced the group to follow them. Um, this is very special. I, I, you know, I remember going to a concert, um, Cincinnati Riverfront Stadium at the time. And but keep on, I, I took, played, done shows with Roger and them, but I hadn't been around them in a while. They hit the stage and that entire stadium. I was like, and then I ended up doing the same thing. I mean, they had a special, special gift of uh, entertaining. They were, I would say Roger and Zap, they learned to entertain more as a group, more than any other group out of Dayton. The, the Ohio players, they were just great musicians, great musicians. I mean, they had 10, 15, 20 years of experience just playing, you know, at high levels. And then they, you know, started making great records. We came out of, no, we were still in high school <laughs> when we did what we did. Um, zapping them, I don't know, because I was never close to those guys. Um but everyone had their own sound. And if you think about it, yeah, you're right. None of us sound alike. Now, what we did, we um, patterned a lot of our horn phrases and our harmonies after the Ohio players' horns. But that was because of Stevie. Stevie knew what they were doing. And so we used that, you know, because we wanted to, uh, I mean, we knew that it was a winning formula and we didn't, we hadn't really developed one of our own yet. So CB brought that in as, as far as that goes. And um, yeah, all of the groups out of Dayton had their own sound. Of course you had Heatwave, they had their own sound and they were, you know, more accomplished, you know, musicians. We were very rough. A lot of the things that we did was still not quote 100% musically done correctly, but that was part of our sound. So, but, you know, we were forgiven. Yeah, I would say you guys had the most edge, uh, kind of, you go back to the early Ohio players, they kind of had a similar edge with like pleasure and pain and that before they got real polished with Mercury. Um, so I would say that's probably the closest, maybe, because, uh, um, yeah. you know, you also had Sun and Fazo and, you know, and they all had unique sounds, you know. And keep in mind, Fazo was an abbreviated version from the players. The players, they were on that song. That was that was that was their baby. So uh but those musicians in Fazo, I mean of course Keith Harrison and some of the other cats, I mean they really uh did a great job with that group as well. And you know they're still getting, you know, their just dues. Yeah, even though there was that relationship, Riding High didn't sound anything like I would never say, oh that sounds like the Ohio players. It didn't really no, it didn't. It didn't. Yeah. So it was, you know, everyone wanted to do their own thing. And um, it was just a blessing that it did happen that way. It is good that, you know, one group didn't sound like the other. That allowed uh, maybe probably more chart domination, you know? Exactly. Now, the, the, this is the other thing. And I think people from Dayton now know, but if you say Dayton, Ohio, to a music community anywhere on the planet, they know what came out of Dayton. Dayton is known for being one of the smallest communities that brought out more R&B funk music than any other city probably. You know, there, there might be a few now, but uh, back in the day, Dayton was definitely on the map. And just Ohio in general, you know, if you extend to like the Isleys and Bootsy and it's just definitely. incredible. Definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, but when I was a, a kid and growing up and loving the music, you know, in Los Angeles, I had no, I didn't know what Dayton was. I'd never been, you know, uh, east of uh, Arizona. You know, I had no clue. And then later yeah. on, it's like, wait a second. You start putting the pieces together. It's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was just a great opportunity. We learned early on. Uh, oh, the other thing that happened, of course, because we were doing shows with Bootsy, back in the day, Bootsy had probably 15 or 20 cabinets that covered the whole backstage. And of course, Steve Washington being the sound guru, and of course, he's got his own Mark Adams. Uh, 
we ended up purchasing a tractor trailer full of equipment. And it's like, what do we need a tractor trailer full of equipment? We had um, earthquake cabinets, Servant Vega. I mean, we had rigs that we really, really weren't ready for by the time we were going out on the second album. So Mark had just rubbed his string and it was like, mm. we never really got a chance to really take advantage of that because see, the other thing that happened was going into 1978 is when the, the big uh, snowstorm hit, uh, especially on the East Coast. And that's when we were trying to, we were being rushed to put out another record. Uh, we weren't really prepared. Although there was one song that we did that we were really excited about. Somehow or other, it got lost in the studio. And we tried to redo it. It was Volcano Rupture. But there was a, there was a previous recording of that that was real close to the same vibe of Slide. And it was lost in the studio. And we just, that's just one of them things, you know, things happen. So, oops. <laughs> I love volcano rupture, but I can only imagine what was lost. It's... Oh, it was, it was just one of those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was there ever any lyrics intended for volcano rupture? No. Not that I know of. No. No. And I mean, keep in mind, that was the other thing that happened. Um, we started to bring in other uh, individuals, which is when Kurt Jones came in, uh, Sterlina Young came in. Um, when we went out, the second half of our first tour, we had 13, 14 people on stage. That was too many people. But we wanted to have definitely enough people that were singing because our concentration was still on the music. And just keep in mind, I mean, again, we're 17, 18 year old kids. We hadn't had a lot of experience. I mean, there's one thing to know how to sing. There's another thing to know how to properly use the mic. There's another thing to understand, you know, how to make sure you're, you're breathing correct. I mean, and there's a lot of things that we did correct, which is why we had the success that we had. But it's, it's another thing to still know how to continue to learn to even make it better, be more consistent. So, but, you know, again, like I said, by the time we got to the fourth album, we got control of everything. And we didn't do a good job when it came to the management side of it. Typical, unfortunate, but typical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so did you have any misgivings when, you know, there started to be so much personnel turnover or were you cool with that? Or how did you view that? We only saw it as a plus. The other thing that was um, needed, having so many people in the band, we needed other income. And Stevie understood that. And, and we, you know, we sit around and talk about it. I mean, you know, George Clinton kind of pioneered that to have all these musicians. You needed more than one record budget to subsidize all the additional people that came in. So when Star and Kurt came in, there were some other people who came in uh, here and there. Uh, some of the people that Stevie grew up with, there was some additional horn players that came in at times to record. Uh, we had the, the, the Brecker brothers, Ludo Gatto, some of those cats came in and recorded on one of our uh, songs on the second album. Um, no, there was never uh, a problem when other people would come in. We didn't have that problem. The problem came in when still after that happened and we were and the music was getting better and better. And then we realized that there wasn't enough money coming in. And things got difficult, even to the point, I mean, you know, we weren't eating as well as we needed to eat. And so that creates tension and stress, you know, and, you know, we didn't want to be calling back home to, you know, mommy and daddy. We're, you know, funk stars. <laughs> Remember where I used to hide the sex in the shed? Can I go stay there? <laughs> Trust me, I thought about it. 
<laughs> but uh, I wouldn't change it for anything. I mean, to this day, it's interesting, you know, uh, I've worked at, you know, numerous jobs and I, I always made sure that people did not know about my music situation. So at times I could be at a, at a, at a, a job five, six, seven years. And then somebody, and maybe I finally said something, I don't know, but then they would find out and be like, you mean to tell me this whole time? <laughs> because I wasn't, I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, after things kind of went the way that they went, I wasn't proud of it. I was, it was almost an embarrassment um, that we didn't capitalize on certain things. But then what happened was when, you know, they started having the quote old school shows and, you know, all that came back. I don't want to forget people saying, well, you know, are you going out? I'm going, no, <laughs> I have a regular check. Uh, unlike a lot of the other uh, musicians. I mean, the thing is everyone, and you know, from your life, no matter what you've done, you needed to do what you needed to do what was going to be best for you and your family. And at the time, me being more of a section player, you know, I needed to, you know, get some personal things together because, you know, I made some mistakes that I shouldn't have made. And um, I've never regretted these, the, the, the steps that I've taken for me. It's, it's worked for me. So, but in that, um, I, I, I never was one to try to frequent back to going into clubs and stuff, playing for $50 here and there. Because for me, me not being the great musician, I didn't need to be in the club because I was married. It wasn't a good environment for me. So I kind of stayed clear of that. And uh, I've never regretted it. It has put me in, in a position where, you know, I am now to still be able to make some things happen. Slave is a brand that is still known and still has great fans. Slave has forced to not have been in the market as much as we could have and should have. Slave still has a serious following. So um, we're just making an attempt to clean some things up and you know bring back that energy uh, to our fans and make sure they know that we appreciate them because they, they have kept it alive. Yeah, that's awesome. That that's happening now. I totally understand, you know, how you described your own path. Um, was uh, Stone Jam the last slave recording you did? Or Yes, that was the last album that I did. Uh, and, with... and then you did the Aura records? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I actually played drums on the song um, Thinking About It. That's me on the drums. <laughs> Were you just fooling around or like, hey, it's pretty good. Go ahead, go for it. I was just fooling around. And then Steve Warshin encouraged me to, you know, to keep playing. But see, the other thing was he needed somebody to play drums during times when we were having rehearsals because I would just keep playing and playing and playing because I'm practicing. And he was still constantly working on sound. So um, there was always room to grow. And... Um, I think we still continue to grow as far as musicians and writers, but we didn't grow as far as businessmen. That's where we took a real bad seat backwards. We didn't concentrate on what would work because I mean, you know, you have to have a place to live. You have to be able to eat. And of course, by that time we started having, you know, family, children, wives, ex-wives, so that's when, you know, I decided that I needed to do what I needed to do. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.